Welcome back to another Box to Box WSL episode. I'm Alex Ibaseta, your host, and as usual, I'm joined today by Jesse Parker Humphreys and Abdullah Abdullah. How are you two? Oh, good. Doing well. Had a frappuccino, so I'm happy. <laughs> Frappuccinos for the win, everyone. <laughs> it's the word of the day. Taking it back to the good old days, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was another packed weekend in the WSL with the final round of fixtures before the amazing international break that we have coming up. When teams return, they will be on the home straight of the season with just three games to go from both sides, a few in hand, um, considering all the postponements that we've had this season so far. And it was a pretty routine week for most of the big sides with Chelsea, Arsenal, and Manchester City all recording comfortable wins. There were some shocks, though, as Brighton upset Manchester United with the help of some geese that Maria thought is that here ever so um, smoothly and elegantly shoot off the pitch. And West Ham scored a quarter of all the goals that they've managed this season in just one game against Reading. So quite busy the weekend. Um, We'll kick off with West Ham versus Reading that was played on Saturday. That kicked off the weekend's football, and it was definitely a game that you wanted to watch from the start, as West Ham were 3-0 up within the first 11 minutes of the match. There was a magnificent crotch from Kenza Daly, Beth Mead TM, (laughs) to open the scoring before a header before Katarina's uh, Svitkova and Martha Thomas's first professional hat trick left West Ham up 5 0 at halftime. The second half was a formality at that point, pretty much. Um, but Jesse, how much of this one was West Ham playing well and how much was it Reading playing poorly? Yeah, it was an interesting one. I mean, it was, it was definitely surprising. I don't think anyone could say they saw this result coming, but definitely in the way West Ham played. It had, you know, lots of the hallmarks of the kind of style that we've seen Ollie Harder, like, try and make them play under more, you know, like, pressing a lot higher and a lot um, more efficiently, playing in this, like, 3-4-3 formation with, with wing-backs coming around. And, you know, all of those things were what made West Ham so effective in this game. But at the same time, it really did feel like Reading were making it easy for them. I mean, it was... Jess Fishlock's last game for Reading and it was possibly the worst I've seen her play all season. So that was a bit of a shame for her, but there was just so many wayward balls that West Ham were just absolutely able to pounce on. But credit to West Ham, you know, like they don't, they've not always looked efficient in front of goal. And today they were just, um, on Saturday even, they were just absolutely ruthless. And it, it was a really, really impressive win. It was like watching a Manchester City or, or an Arsenal or Chelsea. So, you know, credit to Oli Harder. And I think it's obviously a really good boost to the team and kind of shows that what he's been working on is, is starting to bear fruit. Yeah, and not a lot of time left in the league, unfortunately, for, for it to continue that much. But Abdullah, you know, we saw Reading persevere playing out from the back, even as West Ham intercepted them again and again and again. Why do teams continue to persist with this when it is clearly harming them? Great question. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's just down to uh, I think it's just down, down to teams wanting to play their natural game. Uh, you know, managers are, are kind of hardened onto their philosophy and how they want to play. And you know, um, it's it's it, it almost you know yes, we've shipped away one or two goals, and you, you usually hear coaches say, you know, I'm okay with making mistakes as long as we keep playing the way that I want to play. 
Um, obviously, in this case, it did more harm than good just because they were constantly getting intercepted in midfield. There was a lot of pressing traps by West Ham. And I think at the same time, you've got, you know, I, I think they probably should have, you know, when, you, when, you've, when you've shipped three goals, you know, early in the first 20, you know, 15, 20 minutes, you kind of need to then rethink your plan and say, okay, maybe I need to change it up. And I think he just maybe had, you know, they just had too much faith in, in the style and the way they were playing to kind of say, okay, fine, we're two, three nil down. Let's keep doing this and let's keep going. At the same time, you've got to look at it. West Ham are, um, you know, motivated. They really wanted to win it. They needed to win the game uh, and they came out firing. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's, I think it's, it's just down to the fact that, you know, they are in a safe position. They are, they are, they are, they are where they are. So they could try and afford to do that. Obviously, it clearly didn't work out this time. So, um, but I, I guess if they were, if the tables were turned, I don't think they'd be doing that. I think they'd be playing a little bit more of a safe approach. And looking at the table at the moment, from Aston Villa, who sits at the bottom now, to Birmingham City, who sits in ninth, just. Three points separate the last four teams right now with, you know, Tottenham escaping that little relegation battle with the three points gifted to them a couple of weeks ago because now they sit comf- well, relatively comfortably in eighth place with 17 points. So a four point advantage to Birmingham. Um, but obviously West Ham have two games in hand over Bristol City and Birmingham City, whereas Aston Villa also have those games in hand. And it's so close. It's so tight to call. There is, it's, it's ridiculous. And obviously, you know, Reading are a steady mid-table team in the WCL. So a 5-0 win, three points against Reading for West Ham, that was huge. And Jesse, how does this 5-0 win affect the relegation battle now? Yeah, like you said, it, it's an absolutely massive win for West Ham. I think in two senses, both, you know, just from a confidence thing and two, you know, for Harder as a kind of vindication of this system that he's brought in and the impact that it's had on the team, I think it will be interesting to see how, you know, whether they can take it into the next games. You know, I think we're going to see in these next games after the international break how much this was Reading just being really bad. But I will say for West Ham, it's crucial that they've got these two games against Aston Villa who I will say are just like Reading in that they do always play from the back and they're not very good at it so if I was Ollie Harder and I was watching the way we'd played on Saturday I would be licking my lips because I really think West Ham could walk away with six points from that easy and then they'll be home and dry so you know I think this was a, a really really big win I think you know obviously it's easy to say we won't see how big it is until they play the rest of the games but I think from from just a confidence perspective and a system perspective, it really ticked all the boxes. Yeah, and, and Abdullah, going off of that, you know, we did mention West Ham started to play Aston Villa twice at the end of the season. And there there's only two points separating both of them at the moment. But then West Ham also have to play Everton and Man City in the last stretch of the season. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, you have Aston Villa, then you have Everton, then you have Aston Villa again, and then you have Manchester City. It's a tough last four games for West Ham with the, the pressure of not getting relegated after, you know, a new coach, Ollie Harder, and then after a big win like this, you know, it's potentially uh, kind of looking into the future for next season of what can what they can do um, next season. But, Abdullah, what are your takes on these last four games that West Ham have? Tough, tough four games. I think um, every game from now on, and I'm just going to steal uh, Zidane's phrase from Real Madrid, every game is a cup final. 
you know, his, his famous last few words in, in his press conferences. But no, nah, really, every game for them is basically has to be a final. And and those two Aston Villa games, just going off what Jesse said, like, he's going to have to look at that and go, we have to take six points. There's no other option for them. If, if the way Villa are playing, the way they play and the way they're able to then, um, you know, stamp their authority and be able to you know counter counteract what they uh, what they bring to the table. That is a that is a, that is you know that's six points almost waiting waiting for them. You know, on the other hand, Everton's going to be a tough game and City's going to be a tough game. I don't see them picking up any points against City. I think it's pretty safe to say that they will probably very likely to be to lose that game. Everton. Probably 70-30 to Everton. You know, you've got you've got a small, t- bigger chance, but not as big as you would have against Man City. So realistically, I think they need to be targeting their best, you know, th- their best performances for those two games. And West Ham squad isn't that bad. They've got some talented players there. You know, Kenza Dali, you saw how she played Martha Thomas with her first hat trick. Um, these players know how to play really well. And you, you can now see a tactical identity brought to the pitch um, a little bit more than it was under Matt Beard. And, um, you know, I, I think I think putting that together, they're, they're going to want to get, at, you know, maximum points from those two games because they can't rely on Everton and Man City to drop points. That's 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 going to be it's a, it's a very dangerous proposition over there. Yeah, definitely. And also another thing to kind of put up in the air is to question if West Ham's low knees are going to come back for next season. Should they stay up? Is Alicia Lehman is... Cho going to come back uh, to West Ham and are we going to see maybe perhaps a better West Ham? But of course, we can't really answer that question now until next season. Uh, But we'll move on because Martha Thomas was not the only player to get a first half hat trick this weekend. As Sam Kerr briefly, very briefly, went ahead of Vivian Miedema in the WSL goal scoring charts as she gave Chelsea a 3-0 lead at halftime against Birmingham. Girl Wrighton and Frank Kirby added three more in between them. And, you know, this was... A pretty standard one, I guess. But it was there was a quote from from Emma Hayes after that was really interesting. She said that for the first time this season, she felt that no matter who was on the pitch, the standard and the standard of playing wasn't gonna drop. Um, and it, I thought it was just really interesting the moment of the season that she decides to say that. But Abdullah, there has been some chat this week about whether Chelsea are actually playing at their very best, and it it was big on Twitter. I don't know if if anyone didn't see it. It caused a lot of uh, drama, to say the least. Uh, but did this game answer any of those questions? You know, when I saw the thread, um, and I'll be the first one to put my hands up, and I'll say that I agreed with some of it. And then in retrospect, and Jesse can attain to this, because we spent an hour and a half last night having a full-on conversation on this exact thread and kind of everything around that. And, you know, I think this game just kind of proved that they're still Chelsea. They're still the team that's dominant. They're still the team that knows how to get things done. I mean, a 6-0 win is a, I mean, at this point, is it really a statement win when they usually score three, four, five goals, you know, in a game? I think kind of a lot of, I don't think, again, it's Birmingham City, so it's not like it's going to cast away everyone's doubts instantly because of the level of competition there. However, I think from a from a deeper tactical system perspective, I think it just goes to show that, that the squad is deep, 
the squad is it's 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 all about the system it's not about the players in the system it's not about how good one player is over another it's about the system itself and how effective and good and the players understand the system the better you understand the system the better you know the better you understand the system the better it is that you know for the overall team to play so for example you saw girl right you know come in you saw you know a couple of other changes here and there Yet they still win and won six nil. You could have expected the six nil to come from, they say their first choice starting eleven. You could have expected the six nil to come in, and now you've seen it from essentially a changed rotated side. But no, overall, I think I think um, Chelsea are Chelsea. I think there, there, there's a few more points that that really we could go into, but I don't want to be spending another 30, 40 minutes here explaining all of that. So I will I will avoid it. Uh, although there will be something coming out on Twitter soon enough that will hopefully explain all of these ideas that I have. But uh, yeah, no. Overall, I think uh, Chelsea are Chelsea, and Emma Hayes is just gonna, you know, it's, I think I think it's it's a false alarm. I think for people, it's it's a false alarm. It was we just saw a small sort of chink in the armor, but nothing to be alarmed about. And and Jesse, following up on that with you, I think what interested me most about this thread in particular was that it kind of hinted that Chelsea could be even better if they had a more tactical approaching coach if that makes sense, you know, because, I mean, obviously that's just one statement, but, you know, Emma Hayes does, as Abdullah mentioned, it's all about the system. And it's about players fitting into that system rather than making a system that fits players. And, you know, obviously every coach has a different approach to that, but do you think that an approach where Emma Hayes does a system that benefits the players instead of the other way around would potentially make Chelsea somehow even better? I think when you are playing at the level... Chelsea are playing at your you have to put your system first because you have so many high quality players you could spend all day looking at different ones who you could put your system around do you know what I mean you spend forever trying like different things and I also think it's not true that Emma Hayes is geared to one particular system and I'll use an example from yesterday that I kind of thought highlighted that because basically Chelsea kind of started off in and I guess what like felt like a bit like a 4-3-1-2 or a 4-3-3 at times, you know, like they move about so much, it, it can be hard to see sometimes. But basically, they started out with Panila Harder effectively playing in a free central attacking midfield role, number 10 role, whatever you want to call it. She could go where, wherever she wanted. She, she was all across the pitch, you know. And Harder was taken off at half time, at which point Chelsea were 3-0 up. And then looking at the players on the pitch, it felt like you might want to play, you know, just like more of a flat 4-3-3, you know, have Kerr, England and Kirby just as that front three, you know, Wrighton was on as well. You could have played a 4-4-2. But what I thought was really interesting was that Hayes kept Kirby in that same attacking central midfield role, which is not a role I think Kirby super excels at. She's, she can be very good in it. She can be very effective in it because she's a fantastic player. But I think really most of the time you either want her on kind of the right wing or as a second striker but what I thought that showed to me was that regardless of the fact that Penila Harder wasn't on the pitch Emma Hayes was still drilling her players to play as if she was there you know and I feel like this is what a lot of people seem to have been saying that you know Hayes isn't using Harder in the right way I'm yet to see a particularly convincing explanation of what is the right way to use Harder but to me that example yesterday was exactly that like Hayes wants to use Harder in that free role and she is going to drill her side to play like that regardless of whether the Harder's on the pitch and if that's not a statement of making a system that fits your players as well as putting everyone into that system I don't really know what is yeah it is it is true I think 
Pernille Harder is going to shine in any role that you put her in, especially in a team like Chelsea, where you do have Fran Kirby, Sam Kerr, Bethany England to play off of. Um, so I think Pernille Harder in that in that aspect was is probably, for lack of a better word, I would say that's probably the weakest argument of that entire thread. Uh, but, you know, coming back to the WSL, because as you know, we can get probably carried away with this for the entirety of the episode. But, you know, Jesse, again, this was Birmingham's biggest loss of the season. Is it a worry for Carla Ward that her side are conceding more and more goals now? Yeah, I think it's, you know, Carla Ward said after the game that this was never a match where she expected to take points. And that is clearly true. It had been a massive upset. But I do think there are like some kind of worrying signs. You know, losing Rachel Corsi was always going to be tough. And to me, it always felt like Carla Ward's plan was like, let's get in as many points on the board as we can when we've got Rachel Corsi here. And then we're just going to have to hold on for dear life. And you can kind of see that starting to, to slip. And I think what was so disappointing yesterday was that Birmingham really frustrated Chelsea for the first 30 minutes of this game. You know, the game was really bitty. They were really stopping Chelsea from holding on to possession. Chelsea looked a bit rusty as well, to be honest. You know, there were lots of stray balls. Um, Magda Eriksson was getting fed up at everyone. She was telling, like, the players to, like, try and keep the, keep the ball to keep the flow. And then you just kind of get these two moments really for the first and second goal where Chelsea have shots uh you know there's an Aaron Cuthbert shot there's a Pernilla Harder header which are either saved or come off the bar and both times Sam Kerr gets to that second ball and you know Sam Kerr's great in those spaces you know she's a very lethal striker clearly but those are situations where if you're a side and you know you need to do those basics right because it's one thing to get like torn apart by like Chelsea's fourth and fifth goal which are these very like neat one twos around the left back you know you've got Frank Herbie, Beth England, Guru Wright and all interchanging very quick passes that's the kind of goal you expect to concede against Chelsea but I think what would be so disappointing to Carla Ward was those first two goals they were just so unnecessary and that's the worry because if you're not doing those basics against Chelsea you can write off that game and say we were never going to get any points but when you go into those games you know that that are still coming up you know like for Birmingham I guess the the obvious one to highlight would be that Tottenham one which I'm sure is going to be juicy as well because they're annoyed about having it uh the game given to Tottenham in the, the the first the first fixture but like that would be my worry there is why are you letting your concentration drop in those moments when you've actually been quite effective so far in the game yeah you can even go so far as to say that the third like Sam Kerr's hat trick goal was, you know, obviously off of a, as, um, an Aaron Cuthbert free kick. And for some reason, Sam Kerr had a free header. There was, you know, there was Birmingham defenders around her. There was people around her, but essentially Sam Kerr was unchallenged at the ball. Uh, and her three goals were pretty much unchallenged. So that is definitely a good point you make there, Jesse. It is not necessarily the the goals that you would expect to concede in terms of, yeah, you know, that, Obviously, the, the girl writing goals you mentioned, Frank Kirby out to Beth England, Beth England with a cutback. Um, that was brilliant. But yeah, maybe a, a lapse of concentration like we saw in United earlier in the season as well. But moving on because United messed up here. The shock of the weekend came in Crawley as Brighton beat Manchester United 1-0 thanks to an Inessa Kagman penalty or Inessa Goldman <laughs> penalty. United had opportunities, as usual, to score, but with Jess Sigsward in particular failing to convert a 1v1 against Megan Walsh, but Brighton were able to hold firm. A huge blow to United's fight for that Champions League race, but Arsenal have yet to play Brighton at home 
in the home stretch, and both have yet to play Everton. So it's not entirely over for United just yet, though it is completely out of their control now, which Casey Stoney is definitely not happy about. And Abdullah, can we safely say that United's Champions League hopes are over? And how does this impact their season as a whole? Yeah, I mean... uh... I mean, now the minute, you know, you, you you need other teams to do you a favor to be able to reach a certain goal or a certain position, it's pretty much, you know, you, you're pretty much, you, you're basically going to think, look, you got to assume that the other team are not going to drop points and you are out of the race because the minute it's out of your hands, you can't do anything about it unless you just keep winning your games. And I think we've seen at times a season where United, there, you know, there were, there were points that they picked up where people may have expected them not to pick up. I, I, I see the, the 1-1 against Chelsea early in the season as a, as a point gained rather than one lost. But then you've got games like this where in their eyes now and the way they've been playing, it's, 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 it's points lost. That's a game that they should have won quite comfortably. And they ha- it's not like they didn't have the opportunities. Uh, like you said, Jack Sig- Jess Sigsworth missed a great 1v1 uh, chance and you know, a, couple of, a couple for the defenders as well from set pieces. You know, what does this mean for the rest of their season and impact the whole season as a whole? I think, I, think it's, I think it's demoralizing a little bit, right? Because you've worked so hard through the season to get into a position where you were at one point, top of the league, people were raving about United and talking about potential Champions League qualification for a good part of the season. And now you've kind of in the last few weeks kind of just let it go out of your hands. You know, it is demoralizing. Casey Stoney is not going to be happy about the whole thing. And, uh, you know, I think unless, you know, there are some slip-ups from Arsenal and, and you know, and, and other people can do a job uh, for United, I think even coming in fourth place right now, while still an incredible achievement for United as a whole to come, you know, second season in, coming in fourth, I think they, for them, it'll be, you know, we, we could have made the Champions League quite easily and, you know, we let it go. And I think we mentioned a few episodes back, Jesse, you know, never doubt a Hope Powell team. Brighton have taken points off of Man City, Man United, and Chelsea this season. Remember, Brighton gave Chelsea their first loss, and I think it was two years. How are they doing it? I think there is a healthy dose of luck sometimes, but not all the time. And I think what's most confusing about this Brighton side is there are moments where they just kind of collapse. You know, we saw last week they lost... 5-0 to Everton. They lost 5-0 to Arsenal earlier in the season. You know, they can just, like, totally, like, lose concentration. But when that concentration is there, teams find them very, very hard to break down. And I think, you know, sometimes I wonder if there are just almost games where Brighton are like, oh, well, we've just let that one go. So we're almost going to stop concentrating to save ourselves for the next game. Well, we'll restart our concentration levels really high. Um, but they're like a very well-drilled team. They know how to kind of keep it tight. They're very good, you know, talking about teams that kind of persist in playing out from the back. This is not what Hope Pals team are going to do. They are like pure, no nonsense. We are going to play a game. We're going to play long balls when we need to. Like, we are just going to hoof out from the back. We don't care. But it works really well. And I am like, I think there's two things that are really interesting. First, I can't wait to see the Brighton Arsenal game because that is like a great final fourth scalp for Hope Pal to go for. And two, you know, at the start of the season, and it, this conversation comes up every year, is about like how 
um, you know, the WSL, the gaps are too big. You know, the, it's just the big teams and the small teams all aren't good enough. There's no competition. But we're looking at a situation where Brighton could effectively have decided the title race and the Champions League race, you know, as a side that are sitting in, what, seventh? So in some ways, I think they're a great testament to, like, what this league can do and can show. And I, it's a bit of a cliche, you know, it's not necessarily true that you know, any, any side can win against anyone, but it shows there are still those moments there and it shows these big teams are, are fallible still. Yeah, I think it, it's, starting, it's starting to be less the top four against everybody else and it's starting to kind of trickle down the league. I think now you can easily say that from first to seventh, any team can take points off of anyone and then in the relegation battle, it gets a bit trickier. Um, but obviously we've seen Bristol City play really well this season, you know, the end of the season and it's it's a compliment to them but I think now it is kind of expanding a bit off that top four and you're seeing a lot more teams take points off that top four so but you know where United failed to get three points Arsenal thrived yet again beating Bristol City 4-0 and obviously Viv heard that Sam Kerr got a hat trick and was leader of the WSL goal scoring and Viv decided to open the scoring in the fourth minute against Bristol City she said hold my beer Sam Kerr is not getting this just yet. And she ended up getting her second in the 65th minute. And she could have easily gotten a hat trick. Um, but for some reason, Arsenal, in the dying 10 minutes of the game, decided that they didn't want to score anymore. Uh, now, Kerr and Miedema are tied with 17 goals as the WSL's leading goal scorers at the moment. And Daniela van der Donk got the second of the, af- of the afternoon from a brilliantly worked team goal. Caitlin Ford did a little dummy and Noel Maritz got the ball. She had it up. She slid it up to Viv out on the wing, who got a first-time cross into Dan. Dan got an easy tap in. Bada bim, bada boom. Arsenal playing football. A fourth consecutive win and a clean sheet for the Gunners. And in case you missed it, a sad week last week as Joe Montemuro announced that he is leaving Arsenal at the end of the season. I'm, you can't see it, but I am really sad right now. That really that that hurt me. And Jesse. You know, it is a bit sad also that it took Arsenal this long to find a consistent form again. Does this give you hope for next season under a new manager? I think it's a tricky one because Arsenal's problem has never been these kind of games. They're incredibly efficient against teams who aren't in the top three. And they got the win, obviously, against Man United, which has kind of added into the, the good feeling around this current run of form. But I think the real challenge for whatever manager does come in is to kind of deal with the maybe slight psychological feeling even that they have just dropped off, particularly City and Chelsea, you know. And it's kind of interesting because that's kind of what Montemuro, the position Montemuro was in when he came into the club, right? You know, like Arsenal had slipped away. They'd not won a title in a number of years, having been for well over a decade, you know, kind of the trailblazers in in women's football in England. Um, And it kind of feels like Arsenal now in the exact same position they were in, where they've kind of once again slipped off. It's going to be really interesting to to see kind of what they go with. I was listening to Tim Stillman talk on AskCast about this, and it kind of sounds like they might actually be going in the direction of more of a like head coach and, and technical director. And I wonder if that is maybe maybe slightly more practical ideas that you might get from a head coach rather than maybe the more theoretical uh, 
holistic vision you get from a, a manager like Montemuro in particular, who's very wedded to his style of play. Maybe that is what Arsenal needs because this is a, a high quality squad, I think, without being maybe an exceptional squad. Um, but I think they definitely could, you know, on their day, they have the ability there to win against, you know, the best teams in Europe. It's just, we haven't really seen it for the past couple of years. And, and that's a shame, but I think it's going to be really interesting to see what direction Arsenal choose to go in. And I think it's going to be interesting to see whether, you know, Montemuro leaving affects, you know, the kind of hearts and minds of, of some of the squad too, because I know he's very popular with the squad and there has been rumours obviously about big players maybe maybe looking to make moves abroad. And I guess that will be the interesting thing to see whether they think this is kind of the, the point in time to take leave of Arsenal. Uh, it is it is interesting because they did start the season, obviously, you know, hit the ground running from, I think it was five ones that they got in a row. And then they kind of dropped off a lot. You saw this style of play, not as fluid, not as nice. There was a lot of frustration from the players. And then um, I think it was the international break in January, I think, where where we saw, you know, Viv Miedema, Daniela van der Donk and, and Joe Ward really enjoying their football with the Dutch. And it used to be the opposite. It used to be where the Dutch were a bit too strict and then Arsenal was, was kind of their, their freedom, sort of say. And it, and it was opposite now. And that kind of raised eyebrows. And and now you kind of saw another 360 turn and now you see Arsenal enjoying their game again in the league. Um, so it's been ups and downs and it is interesting to see how players have reacted to these ups and downs, particularly, um, you know, Viv and Lisa come as a you know, a package deal. And obviously Lisa hasn't been getting as much playing time lately. So would that impact what Viv does? Will the coach impact what Viv does? Will Champions League impact what Viv does? And obviously Viv Minima is a big name because if she goes, you know, there's Caitlin Ford to replace her, but she's Viv Minima. You know, there's that, that's going to leave a big, big gap for Arsenal to fill. And Abdullah, you know, is this Arsenal's best style of play with the players that they have? Or what would you like a new coach to bring into the team? To answer the first part of your question, yes. I think for the style of play that they have and the style of play that, they, that they've been kind of trying to play for the last few years, they've got the best set core of players that they could find. I mean, when you've got someone like uh, Midema who can can do so good at linking play and finishing, you know, finishing moves off being clinical. And you've got players like Kim Little, Jill Roard, uh, Van der Donk, um, Elio Volti, these, these, these collection of players are so efficient at this quick one-touch style of play that, that, that it's, it's exquisite to watch. Like you, 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 on their day, they're one of the best teams in the world to watch, hands down. What I would like from a new coach to bring in, I kind of would like them to maybe find a, a little bit of a balance, a bit more of a balance style where they can kind of get down and dirty and, and when they need to you know, defend deep and maybe counterattack a little bit more than they need to. I think, I, I, you know, I would like to see a little bit more of that. Like, like Jesse talked about, they're, they're flat track bullies. They can, they can smash teams fifth and below without a problem. They'll, they'll smash them three, four, five nil every, every day of the week. Um, but it's those top three teams where if you want to be able to beat the top three and you had to get there, yes, there is an element of imposing your style. But I feel like a, a different approach needs to be taken where, you have this balance between being able to play this quick, incisive, incisive passing football 
but at the same time have the players to be, you know, who can, you can say, it's like the Arsenal of, of the men's team of yesterday, you know, when you had like the Gilbert Silvers, you know, holding for you, Patrick Vieira, but then up front you had like the Emmanuel Petit, um, Robert Perez, Thierry Henry, you know, you had that flair going up front. So I think if they can find that sort of balance now with the new coach uh, and someone who, uh, who, who can maybe mold the vision to kind of, you know, fit, this new new style of play new style of play then i think i think it could work Manchester City also posted to a 3-0 win against Tottenham thanks to goals from Janine Becky, Caroline Weir and Becky Spencer own goal now, this game was perhaps more notable for the absentees from a City perspective, with no Lucy Bronze and Alex Greenwood having to pull out before the match. And, Jesse, City are starting to look a bit thin for defenders. Has the international break come at just the right time for them? Yeah, I mean, it's all they've got Steph Horton out, Lucy Bronze had a groin issue, apparently, and then Alex Greenwood pulled out as well. You know, I don't know how serious all of those things are but given that Demi Stokes has been a bit broken this season too you get the feeling that they'll be pretty pleased that they've kind of got two weeks now to get to get everyone back to full fitness because you know I mean it's great that they've got Aoife Mannion back and it's really nice to be seeing her play again but it feels like City will maybe feel like every team's just gone through their own mini injury crisis and City's just reached theirs at a good time, except perhaps Chelsea, mainly because their squad's just so ginormous, it never seems to matter who gets injured. But yeah, I mean, this game was just classic City still. I feel like City could play against Tottenham with no defenders and they'd probably still be fine. So, Arguably, yes. Um, and just a reminder for everyone that on April 25th, so the first league game back for, well, that is still pending, whether they probably will postpone that because of the Champions League match, but Man City Chelsea is scheduled for sometime soon, let's just say that. And obviously it is, it is big um, for Man City to have that little rest at the moment. But Abdullah, Tottenham have not won since the middle of January. How do you think a team can turn around from a slump like this? Is it just a case of knowing you're safe and waiting until the summer to sort it out? Yeah, I think you pretty much nailed it on the head, right? Like, you know, you see a lot of teams that um, that kind of when they're when they're kind of mid-table, lower mid-table, and they've got this points gap between them and the relegation threatened teams, you kind of sit there and you go, well, we've got nothing to play for. So and though the managers obviously will always try and motivate their teams to try and say, okay, no, we've got to improve. We've got to strive to get better and do, you know, do this and you know, lay the foundation for the next season. I think at this point, Spurs are in a little bit of a mess, you know, um, where, so I think, I think they just need this. I think for them, they would just love the season to end and then just reset. Start from ground zero again, figure out who they want in the squad, pick up the players that they want and kind of, you know, really be able to put down a marker on the philosophy and the tactical identity that they want to have in the league. Um, they have some decent players in that squad. It's just that at the moment, I think there's no time to kind of um, put down. A, I mean, when, when, you're in, when you're in bad form, it doesn't seem to leave you. You just have to keep working at it and keep working hard. And I, and I think maybe if they were chasing, uh, you know, uh, chasing something, whether it's getting out of relegation or chasing a certain league position that's a high, higher, higher up the table, 
then maybe you could see something change. But otherwise, I, I think it's, I think for Tottenham, it's specifically it's the case. So let the season finish and we restart from next next year. And Everton managed a fairly routine win over Aston Villa with goals from Lucy Graham, Izzy Christensen, and Simone McGill. Although Corey Arthur did pick up a late consolation goal. And, you know, we mentioned it before that perhaps Everton, you know, on their day, they have great players. They have, you know, a really good style of play, I think. But they're missing consistency and, and they're missing a bit of time for everything to gel together, sort of say. But, you know, Abdullah, this Everton side seems to have picked up a bit of form again and are looking pretty comfortable at the moment. Their last two games are against Arsenal and Manchester United. Do you think we will see any upsets? I think I remember saying this a couple of when we discussed this a couple of weeks ago that I think Everton had a better chance to do this against um, against Man United than they did against Arsenal. I think I stand by that. Arsenal, like we said, have picked up form. You know, you know, a few clean sheets in there, a good, you know, good amount of wins. And uh, traditionally, this is where Arsenal um, have been able to do well. Though I think Everton have stepped up a gear and they're they're almost in there. You know, Everton and Man United are in this middle tier. They're not top tier, but they're not the bottom tier of teams. So they've just kind of made their own category of teams between themselves. Um, and I think I, I think it'll be they will give Arsenal a good game. I still think Arsenal will come away with a win. I think the the United game is where I think just considering the form table and how the two teams are playing momentum wise, I think Everton can really uh, can can take points off United. And that that again. You know, can United bounce back from you know you know from this and you know can Casey Stoney you know remind her team that look anything can happen. It is the WSL. Other teams can drop points because like I I'm not sure who plays who first, but if it's Arsenal versus Everton first, um, I mean if if Arsenal drop points. Then it's motivation for United, right? United to come on to that Everton game going, okay, if we can get three points, we can maybe make up some ground here and, you know, build momentum there. So I, I think right now, I think it's it's Everton a better chance against United. But, you know, it, it, it depends on the other results around them. If the results go in favor of United, United could, could really use that as motivation to, you know, to, to kick on. And Jesse, looking at Aston Villa, that late Chloe Arthur goal was only the second Aston Villa goal under Marcus Vigneault. Do you think it might give them a little boost? Yeah, I think it's useful to remember that you can score goals because it's depressing to consistently play football and just never score anything. Uh, a slight um, a slight focus that you need in football. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of important, that bit. Um, but I think, unfortunately, because West Ham did so well... I think if you're Aston Villa, you really have to look over there and think, shit, because I just feel like confidence must be so low. And when you're looking at kind of your rivals, like scoring a lot more freely than you, I do think it becomes a very big psychological hill to climb. You know, I hope that it helps them because I would like that those West Ham Aston Villa games to be exciting. So I think they have the potential to be, you know, kind of some of the best games of the season because of how much is riding on them. But I think it just kind of comes down to this thing of like Aston Villa brought Marcus Bigno in to like have this, I don't know, like to boost them defensively. But it just feels like it's really not helped them in much way at all. And I don't know, maybe if that's even like confusion about the fact that Gemma Davies is still around. But it just really doesn't seem like it, it was quite the right decision for the club to make. Yeah, I think we're all still trying to wrap our heads heads around uh, what exactly is going on there at the moment in terms of coaching. But Jesse, following up there, 
you know, Aston Villa have five games left to play because they still have that pending game against Arsenal. But other than that, we mentioned that the bottom four teams are separated by three points. Aston Villa play all four of those teams. There's Aston Villa, West Ham, Aston Villa, Bristol City, Birmingham City, Aston Villa, Aston Villa, West Ham. You know, they're playing their direct rivals back to back to back to back in that relegation battle. How do you think they're going to get on? Yeah, I was looking at the table today. I worry, actually, for Bristol City. I know they rallied well, but you do just think looking at Aston Villa having all those games, surely they're going to pick up something from them. I mean, this could really be famous last words, but I do think the quality in that Aston Villa side suggests they should be able to pick something up from them because I think that Aston Villa squad is probably more talented on paper than than at least the Birmingham and Bristol squads. Um, and so I think really looking at Bristol's fixtures, they were kind of the team who I felt, oh, I can really imagine you not picking up another another point to the end of the season. And I wonder if looking back on that kind of draw with Birmingham, that will have been their real missed opportunity there. I have a lot to look forward to after the international break. I am so excited. We have, you know, we have the title race, Man City, Chelsea. Then we have that Champions League race. And then we have, you know, Everton, Brighton potentially being big influencers on both the title race and the Champions League race and the relegation battle. It's just there is so much to watch. And then obviously international break, we have a lot of football to watch as well. Um, Spain, Netherlands in particular, I am really looking forward to that one. Um, you have USA, France, France, England, England, Canada. The list can go on forever and ever. But for now, we'll leave it at that. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Box Box WSL. We will see you next time. And make sure you're following our official Twitter account at Box Box WSL to keep up to date with all information and updates about the pod. See you soon. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. See you later. <laughs> <laughs>